Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 464 of the Survival Podcast. It is Monday, June the 28th, 2010, which means we're almost through another month. We'll chalk off the sixth month of the year this week. What's that mean? 50% 50% of your year's gone. How you doing there, folks? Are you making any headway? Are you getting anywhere? If you're not, time to put your uh, shoulder to the grindstone or your nose to the grindstone, so to speak, because half of the year of 2010 is now gone. Sorry to start your Monday out with a little bit of somber thought, but it's, you know, it's necessary that we stay motivated. Today we're going to try to stay motivated by taking your questions and your feedback and your thoughts on what's going on out there. Because uh, we have our Monday listener feedback show. Really excited about today's show. i got a lot of great stuff. i got questions on handguns and uh, how to get maybe a reluctant spouse to take a new look at them. Uh, I have some information about they're genetically engineering your salmon now, folks. They want you to eat salmon that have been genetically engineered. It's not good enough to just genetically engineer your food. I'm going to tell you about an awesome, and I mean awesome, rain barrel that's dirt cheap compared to the big heavy ones. It's actually made out of soft material available, believe it or not, from Sportsman's Guide. A listener sent me this, and this is really freaking cool. And a lot of other great stuff will be coming out today. Cowboy action shooting uh, and uh, thoughts on a lot of other things like potential civil wars. So you have to hold tight because we do need to do our housekeeping before we get into your questions and feedback. Remember, if you want to send me a question or a suggestion or some commentary or an article or anything you want me to comment on, send that to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. All right, uh, sponsors of the day, our first up in our housekeeping segment, sponsor of the day number one, the Lifesaver 4000 from Ready Made Resources. We're talking about a little bitty portable bottle here that over its lifespan can filter 4,000 liters of water for you and make virtually any water safe to drink because it filters down to 0.015 microns. That's smaller than most bacteria and viruses, meaning clean, fresh, drinkable water wherever you go. It was created originally by its uh, its uh, originator when he witnessed the carnage of the tsunami and decided that something needed to be done so that in remote areas during a disaster, people would have clean, safe to drink water. Next up today is Common Sense Prep. Common Sense Prep delivers exactly what it promises. Common Sense Ways for you to be prepared for everything coming your way. Great selection of books from Paladin Press. Really cool water harvesting uh, tool from uh, the Waterhog H2O system and a bunch of other really great stuff. Please check out Common Sense Prep. I think you'll be happy if you take a look at their website. I'm sure you'll find something that you can use for your prepping needs. Next up, I want to remind you about our gear shop. We have a uh, Survival Podcast gear shop. We have a lot of cool stuff in their shirts, hats, and other cool things. The mugs should be shipping, from what I know, this week. So those of you that pre-ordered the mugs, thank you for helping us get them into the store. Uh, and They should be coming out this week. Uh, next, I want to let you know that we're going back into doing listener appreciation contests. 
Uh, and I'm going to do this with the support of a lot of our vendors this time. First up is going to be High Mowing Organic Seeds. They're going to be giving away some seed packs, about 40 bucks, actually $47 worth of seeds. Uh, we will uh, have a video out for you this afternoon about that contest. I'll uh, let everybody know about that so you can check it out. And uh, later in the week, we'll actually be giving those away. Next up will be the maker of the Soil Cubes. We're going to be giving away some free Soil Cubes. We'll probably do that next week. So, good stuff coming. So, uh, make sure you're paying attention to what's going on with the contest because i got a lot of free stuff coming for you. And the way you win that free stuff is by telling other people about the show. You do have to register for the Listener Contest. Go to the site. Look for Listener Appreciation Contest in the center column. Click on it and uh, fill out one form there, and that way you'll be registered so you can play. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members, including discounts to great people like High Mowing Organic Seeds and the Soil Cube, uh, who are sponsoring Listener Appreciation Contest. That's just one example. There's about 18 other companies that provide discounts to you. Uh, you get about a hundred and it's probably one hundred twenty dollars worth of free eBooks now, and a bunch of other really great stuff, including twenty videos by me that are available nowhere else. And you're supporting the show at what? Twenty cents an episode. It's actually eighteen cents an episode if you do it annually. All right. With that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main topic of today's show, which again is your questions and your feedback. Um, the first one's kind of interesting. She, uh, I was sent an email by Diane. And Diane just said, thoughts, question mark, and a link. And it's a link to a story uh, by Ian O'Neill of um, Discovery.com. And it says, will humans be extinct within 100 years? Let me read you a little bit of the uh, article. Is the clock of doom ticking for mankind? Yes, says uh, eminent 95-year-old scientist from Australia, Professor Frank Fenner, the same scientist who brought... Uh, the Maxitis virus to rabbits to control their numbers in the 60s is acutely aware of the impact on overpopulation and shortage of resources. And the article goes on from there to tell you about previous mass extinctions and why this guy thinks we're going to be extinct. And the author basically states that he's heard stuff like this before, but when somebody as well-known as this guy says it, he's up and listening. And, and of course, listeners want to know what I think. And basically, this guy said within 100 years, we're all gone. The human race is done. No one will be left. Everyone will be gone. The next mass extinction is us. You want to know what I think? Bullshit. Alright? That's what I think. Bullshit. Uh, number one, because there are people that are paying attention enough to be prepared for disaster. So if nothing else, those people have a good chance of survival. But the other side of this is the mass extinction concept for human beings could we ever get there? Yes. A hundred years from now, again, I say bullshit. This guy's 95 years old, and he's a scientist who figured out how to make freaking virus so that rabbits wouldn't overpopulate. You know how you keep rabbits from overpopulating? You shoot them and you eat them. That's one thing you can do with them. The other thing is you don't upset the natural balance of predator and prey, and you leave things around like foxes and coyotes and other predators to eat the rabbits. Now, maybe this guy did this in Australia and there's not enough natural predators, what have you. I don't think we should be spreading a freaking virus for population control. So first of all, while this guy from Discovery seems to like worship at this dude's feet, I'm not exactly enamored with And for those of you who are a little bit older, I don't want anybody to take this the wrong way, but whenever a 95-year-old dude says anything, while I know that that life experience brings some wisdom, I also look at it and go, is there any senility there? 
And you got to realize, this guy's entire life has been in this world, so I don't know, there might even be a little bit of bitterness that he's at the end of his life. Um, he, this is a, The guy was the front man for the World, world Health Organization. In 1980, Fenner was the dude that announced that smallpox had been eradicated. Well, you know what? We still have smallpox in the world, so it's not been eradicated just because of a, a vaccination initiative. It's certainly been put under a great deal of control. What my point is is that this guy can be wrong because he's already proven wrong, and now he's 95, and he's telling us that we're all facing a fate that he knows awaits him within, what, five years maximum, maybe six, seven, eight years, if that. And, I mean, you're lucky when you live to be 100 304 today. Right when you're 95, you have to realize that you know you're reaching the end, and I think for some people that's a very horrifying thing, especially if you're an atheist, because there's no point. Um, so I'm not saying what this guy is because I don't know. I'm just saying that you know, a lot of times when these scientists get up into their late 90s, they start these doom and gloom things going on because it's doom and gloom for them. Why do I think he's wrong? Is more about though. The resiliency and adaptability of humankind. If you said to me that I believe that within you know a hundred years the human race's population may be ten percent of what it is today, I'm skeptical. But I'm also more interested in hearing what you have to say. It's a more reasonable prediction. If you tell me it could be fifty percent, I'm really thinking you might know what you're talking about. But when you're saying that not any group of human beings anywhere in the world will be able to exist in 101 years, I think you're full of shit. So you guys, I'm going to link to the article. You guys can read it for yourself. It's up to you to decide what you think about it. But my overall synopsis is 95-year-old dude spent his whole life screwing with the gene pool, uh, probably has some regrets, probably not the most spiritual individual out there, sour grapes, I'm going, you're going too. I know that sounds nasty. I'm sorry. That's just how I feel about it when I read this article. I don't put any any stock in anything that says we'll all be gone without a better reason than resources will fail. Sure, resources can fail. But you're going to tell me that 100 years from now there's not going to be enough resources left on the planet to support one family? Okay, that's just stupid. All right, let's take another question. Here's another one, totally different type of question. comes from Robbie. Robbie says, Jack, my wife is a bit leery of handguns due to a negligent discharge she witnessed in her first marriage. Glad she's not married to that dude anymore. Thankfully, no injuries. She has shot handguns before, as well as hunted for deer a few times, but shows little interest. I have a couple of revolvers, 38, 357, would like to add a 22 of some make and model to the, in the near future. Any thoughts on how to wife to get on board and relieve her fear and give some peace of mind? She can be safe at home in case of a break-in, etc. Thanks, Bob who is known as the beach walker on our forum. Okay, here's the thing, Bob. The interest part I can't help you with. People have in their genetic DNA uh, a certain amount of interest or lack of interest in any one thing. If she's gone deer hunting and shot the guns a few times, at least she's humored you. So be okay with that. Some women are just not going to get into hunting, guys. I know it's a shocking revelation, but they're not. Shooting, I think you can get some headway. Here's what you need to do. You need to go find the best available 
professional training on the use of handguns available in your local area that can be done after work or on weekends and they do not I do not want you send listen 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 do not send her to like a two day all day long course not that there's anything wrong with those but she doesn't have any interest so she needs to go somewhere where she's going to go maybe five or six times for an hour or two at a time that type of working man's or working woman's training You need to find someone that's going to be very emphatic with her about the operation, implementation, use, maintenance, cleaning, and safety of the firearm more than the shooting. So that by the time she comes out the other end of this, she can pick the weapon up, handle it safely, knows what's safe, what's not, clear malfunctions, and have confidence in her ability with the weapon. You get that, at least you've got someone that doesn't have the fear anymore. When that happens, if you can get her to do that, humor me and go do this. I'll take care of it, honey. You just have to show up. And you stay the... Robbie, uh, stay the hell away from the class. Send her alone without you. Keep your mouth shut and let the teacher do his job. You are the prophet who has no honor in his own country with your wife. Let it B, let someone that's a re- I know you know what you're doing. I know that. I know. She doesn't believe that you can possibly. You're biased, okay? You put someone in there whose job it is to do this, they have a credibility. You don't even if you know more, especially with your wife. Trust me, Robbie. Trust me. And all of you other men that have the same issue, the same thing. When you take anybody, female or male, doesn't matter, who has a fear of firearms, and you help them become a master of the weapon itself, the fear is alleviated. Now it's a tool. And then the logic way that you kind of explain this is, honey, have you ever seen anybody hit by a car or in a car wreck? Uh Uh-huh, yes, okay. Have you ever maybe been in a car wreck yourself? Most people have been in some sort of fender-bender altercation in their life. Uh Uh-huh. So once you saw a car wreck... You know, or have you ever just been driving down the street and seen a car just ripped open? I mean, you know everybody that was in that car must be dead. Yep, everybody's seen that, right? Highway, you're backed up, you finally get there, you're mad, you're angry. Damn it, why is this? And then you see the car and you're like, oh, you almost feel guilty for feeling mad because it's that bad. That kind of a wreck. When you saw that, did you stop driving? No. Okay. Car is a tool. We use a seatbelt. We use safe driving techniques. Even with everything being perfect, we're still at risk of somebody else. Gun works the same way. We use proper safety protocols. We use proper holstering if we're carrying. We use proper storage. We use the knowledge that everybody in the in the in the house that can possess the weapon at any time knows how, all those things together, and we do the best we can just like we do in a car. And if you think about it, there's a million things in life that bad things happen with. People slip on wet floors, but we don't stop mopping our floor. People die in the bathroom more than any other room in the house, slip and fall in tubs and crack their skull. We don't stop taking showers. People go into swimming pools and drown. We do not not go into swimming pools. So yes, sometimes accidents happen with firearms, but it's no different than anything else that poses a risk in life. That's the logic side. You use the logic side to get her to the class and stay the hell out of the way and let the instructor do his job. And no day-long courses. One to two hours of instruction at a time over a three to four week period or something like that. Or if it's every night after work for a week, something like that. If you have to pay the guy extra to do it as an individual class and make it, do it. 
If you want your problem solved, this is how you get it solved. Nothing you say or do will change it. You're going to have to let this person, your wife, become comfortable with the weapon due to full-scale instruction from somebody with more clout than you will ever have with her. Trust me on this, man. I know it sounds wrong, but it's right. Let's take another one. Interesting question. I'm going to have an interesting answer. This comes from Dan G., who is in Idaho. Dear Jack, my wife and I are out of debt and saving for a home. Long story short, we both want a place uh, with a few acres in the country away from neighbors. Nearest area that we can afford that fits our lifestyle, away from others and able to shoot in the backyard, room for dogs, room for orchard, room for garden. It's about 20, 25 miles away from our employer. We're renting a farmhouse now, and that's about 20 uh, miles away, so we're used to the commute. What we're worried about is what would happen if gas prices skyrocket. If gas tripled or quadrupled, we'd really have a tough time. Budgeting for a house, I know we could afford gas still if it quadrupled, but anything over that would really worry me. Am I unnecessarily worried? The alternative is to buy a house in town, and when that is paid off, buy a retirement homestead in the country. Sorry for the length. Your thoughts. Dan, 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 listen. Don't worry. <laughs> could gas quadruple? Yes, it could. And guess what? If gas quadruples, you probably aren't going to have a job anyway. So don't freaking worry about it. I, is that an oversimplification? Yeah, but let, let's be honest. Okay, so gas is selling right now for about three bucks a gallon down here, a little under three bucks. The quadruples, that's twelve dollars. Okay, twelve dollar gas. The economy is off the rails, and we're screwed anyway. If it doubles to six bucks, which is possible, buy your ass a car that gets like forty miles to the gallon. Go find a cheap one, a, a, a kind of you know a, an old Dodge Omni or something. I mean, they made cars back in the eighties that got thirty plus miles to the gallon. So I don't know what you're driving. If you're already driving a highly fuel efficient car, and uh, doubling would really hurt your budget, you got problems with your budget. You're not either making enough income or you're buying too much house. Quadruple. Dude, if gas quadruples, it ain't going to matter that you're 20 or 25 miles from your employer because the unemployment rate in this country with $12 gas, forget about it. In fact, I don't think it's possible to have $12 gas in this country. And let me tell you why. If you put gas at $12, what's going to happen is the economy is going to contract at such a massive rate that there's going to immediately be a correction. I don't think that the economy of the United States, anytime in the foreseeable future, without the complete realization of peak oil, and we're on the not just at the top of the peak, we're on the way on the downhill slide. There's almost no fuel left. Without that, which I don't think we're close to yet, I don't believe any of the sensationalists to say we are. Without that level of shortage, twelve dollar gas can't even be sustained in this country. Because no one would be able to afford to drive, and without demand, the price comes down. Right now, think about this. Right now, fuel should probably be higher than it is. I mean, that's just reality. We got I mean, think about all the little tiny hiccups they've used as excuses to jack oil prices up in the past. We've got an oil platform sitting in the Gulf, spewing oil like mad, and yet the price of gasoline's really not even gone up much, even with a summer bump. Why? Because there's not enough people driving. This economy throttles back pricing. Capitalism is still in play. Don't worry about it. If 25 miles is what you need to do, that's not that far. You can always come up with a solution. You can always find a solution if you want to. Hell, find somebody in town, or hey, get this, 
get yourself a little uh, extra car. Give the guy 20 bucks a month to keep it at his house. And carpool. And then if you guys have to split up and carpooling doesn't work for you and your wife, right? So then drop her off at the car. And meet back there. I mean, one way, that's just, that might be stupid. It might not work. Maybe you're already carpooling. I don't know. My point is there's always a way. Get a freaking moped. Get a motorcycle. Get a horse. I don't know. All I know is I'm not going to not purchase a house 20 miles from where I work simply because one day gas might go up. Because if gas quadruples, your problems are far worse than gas prices for the car individually. You've got real problems. Let's take another question. Okay, Christopher who's a military member, captain in fact, sent me this link um, to Sportsman's Guide. And I don't really have a question here, I just have a resource for you guys. A lot of you guys have wanted rain barrels. Now the problem with rain barrels is you go find like a 50-gallon rain barrel online and it's not even that expensive, but the shipping's crazy because it's huge. And if you want 10 of them, come on. And they take up a lot of space and a lot of weight. And if you ever have to leave, they're all bulky and you have to move them. What if you could get a collapsible rain barrel? Well, what Sportsman Guide has is a... 59-gallon collapsible rain barrel uh, that they say sells elsewhere for up to $80. Uh, they usually say they sell it for $49. They're on sale right now for $24.97. So for $50, bucks, you could get two of them, and what would that be, 118 gallons of rain barrel capacity for two downspouts to your house. They look very well made. They're made out of, I can't really tell what they're made out of. They're made out of some kind of soft collapsible material. They come with some poles that hold them up to provide some structural integrity. Great top on them. If nothing else, you could get some cheap fence lumber and build kind of a, a box around them to help protect, protect them from UV light and give them longer life. And they'd still be less than a heavy, rigid rain barrel. Uh, they also have smaller ones, uh, actually a bigger one. A bigger one. A 104-gallon collapsible rain barrel, 40 bucks. So you, for 80 bucks, you could get 208 gallons of capacity with two of these things. I think they're great. I'll put a link in today's show notes. No more than that. But this is one of those things, why didn't somebody think of it sooner? Uh, I really like the idea of having a rain barrel without having to deal with expensive shipping or if I move, uh, bulk when I move. So check these guys out. Let's take another one. Interesting question here. Marine battery generator. Uh, Jack, we're interested in info. This is from Patty. Um, we're interested in info about the two marine battery generators you spoke of and put your house in order. There's two of us mechanically inept re uh, registered nurses who would like to build this. We fix patients, not mechanical thingies, and don't know what to start, where to start looking. Is info on the forum or a download? Also, can you tell us where to find food-grade paint cans that store dried foods? And let's start out with the generator. Um, and basically, I think it was uh, a big deal that they realized you could build the generator, a backup power system without solar panels. Okay, this is what you need. You need two batteries. You can do it with one, honestly. You need an invert. All of this you can buy uh, with the exception of one component at Walmart. Battery, okay, an inverter, and a charger. Charge your battery, attach your inverter, plug in your appliances. And I made a mistake the last time I talked about this. I was talking about series and parallel. I did not make a mistake. I had so many people freaked out. Oh, they're gonna people are gonna blow themselves. Nobody's gonna blow themselves up with a battery. Uh, the way I described it was exactly correct. The terms I used, I flipped the terms. When you hook multiple batteries together, you can either increase the storage capacity of the batteries, in other words, the duration, how much storage there is, or you can increase the voltage. If you want to increase the voltage, 
you hook it up in what's called a series wiring. And that is where you're going positive to negative with your battery. So if I have two batteries, I have a positive lead off of one battery to my power supply and a negative lead off the other. And those two batteries are separated, and I connect the two batteries together positive to negative. And if I put two 12-volt batteries together that way, I get 24 volts of output. If I put two 6-volt batteries together that way, right, I get 12 volts of output. I do not like doing that with my battery backup systems unless I have to. If I got a hold of a bunch of 6-volt batteries, let's say I got four 6-volt batteries, uh, I can do a combination of those two. And I know this is hard for someone that's not into technical thingies, as you put it in your email. But this is all stuff you can look up online. I'll put a, uh, an, uh, a link today to where you can look at how to wire these batteries together. But if, if nothing else, you do it with one battery and it's simple. The other thing that you need to really have is what's called a charge controller. And what that does is keep you from overcharging your batteries. If you set up a, a constant trickle charge of your batteries. But if you get a plain old car battery charger, most of those have a built-in charge controller. So basically you take your battery, you set it up in your garage somewhere, you plug in the charger, and it charges up. And you know, maybe once every two or three weeks you go in there and run the charger again to keep it from, from discharging, uh, just from sitting around. Pretty much it's going to hold a good charge for you unless it's used. So use it once in a while. An inverter is a simple device. You hook it up to your batteries, and then there's a place that you plug electronics in. Now, there's also a thing called like a, a true sine wave uh, inverter, and some electronics won't run really well on the kind of the off-the-shelf, lower-end inverters. But for basic stuff, like running your laptop if the power's out, powering a few lights, you're going to be fine with that. I can't, in a short show like this, really go into this deeper. All I can tell you is there's a tremendous amount of information online. Look it up and try it. It's not that hard, right? If you can run a flashlight, you know how to work a battery. So don't make it more complicated than it is. So there you go. It's basically charging a battery and hooking up an inverter to the charged battery. That's all you're doing there. And I'll try to maybe do a show with an in-depth... Maybe I'll do a video on this, because I really can't do this much better than I've already done with audio. Uh, let's take another one. I almost forgot there. Um, where do I get the paint cans? I use these phenolically lined, gold-lined, FDA, food-grade-approved paint cans to store dried goods in. Uh, they come from a place called The Carry Company. I'll also include a link to that. Today. It's called The Carry Company. I've always gotten great service and shipping out of them. They make cans from the size of one gallon down to uh, half pint cans with this phenolic gold lining. Uh, I really like it for storing, especially dehydrated vegetables. Uh, let's take another question. Uh, what? One more. Um, last week, guy asked a question by phone. I just made me realize that I forgot something last week about corn. And he wanted to know all kinds of things about controlling uh, corn caterpillars, corn worms. And he also asked, how do you save corn? So if you're listening, and I didn't answer the second part of your question last week, the way you save corn is you leave it out on the stalks until it's fully matured and it begins to dry so that when you open it up and push on the kernels, they're, they're hard. Once that happens, you go ahead and pull your ears off like you normally would harvest, set them out, let them fully dry out, uh, shuck your corn like you're going to eat it, and you'll look at the corn, and basically you just take your two hands and twist them in counter-twisting uh, directions, and your corn will fall right off the cob. Pretty easy to do. Sorry I forgot you last week, but for almost forgetting here on Patty, maybe remember that. Now let's take another question. It's kind of an interesting question. It says, uh, it's from Chris. Chris says, hey, Jack, new to the podcast. Catching up on old podcasts at work. The show is great and informative. I'll be 28 in October, and I would like to purchase some property. Nothing outrageous in price. My topper is $25,000. First question for my first piece of land, do I buy land, say, five acres or more by itself, 
or do I buy a piece of land varying in acreage with a house or shelter on it? Second question, if possible, do I want to have one piece of land or is it good to pick up an acre here and there and own several pieces of property? Chris, first, let's start out with you buy raw land or a house with land for $25,000. If you can find a house with land, I don't care if it's a dilapidated house that mostly needs a matchstick and a gallon of gasoline to go away, if you can find a nice piece of land and a house, meaning you have a, an you know electricity run, sewer hookups, whatever was running that house there with the house for twenty five grand, buy it. Let me know because if you're not going to buy it, I might want to buy it myself. So you're really looking for raw land at your price point because it's not likely that you're going to find a house and land for twenty five k. You might find an old mining shack or an old hunting shack or an old single-wide uh, mobile home. And again, the big thing there isn't the structure. Uh, you can make do with it. It's probably in really shitty shape for that price. But you can make do with it. But it's a huge cost saver if there's a septic system and a well or city water, depending one or the other, and electricity hookups on the property. So if you find anything like that, even if the, the structure is complete crap, Don't discount the value of utilities being on the property, standalone or otherwise. Okay, So it's most likely you're looking at raw land at this price point. I would tell you to try to cut your price back to about $20,000. that will give you five k to either put some type of uh, makeshift shelter on there, maybe using one of the tough sheds or something like that, uh, or you know something similar. to what I, I wouldn't buy from here because you're going to overpay. But when you go to Home Depot and Lowe's, you see those great big sheds uh, that sell for two, three, four thousand dollars, depending on options. You can generally find companies that build them directly and they usually sell to Home Depot and through Home Depot. You go to them directly, you'll save some money, get that built on site. You could probably for 5k put in a generator, or maybe a couple solar panels, one of those sheds, uh some stockpile. So I mean, I think that you really want to pull your price back from your top end and reserve that 5k for some improvements. On uh, do I buy one piece of land or multiple pieces of land? As a prepper, one for your first piece. And you buy as much as you can get that fits your needs on that one plot. Because if you tell me I find a, I found a piece of land that's four acres or three acres or five acres or two and a half or whatever, and it's really great, it's what I really need for what I want to do, and I can get it for $15,000, great, now you have $10,000 to develop it. And one well-developed piece of land, and you would be surprised what you can do for $10,000 with either RV or a, a re, a re uh, you know, kind of a refurbished uh, small mobile home or the shed approach or whatever. You'd be shocked what ten grand can do for you to create a little bug out location in development. And I would rather see that than you going out and buying two pieces of land and having completely no garden, no stockpile, no cash, uh, out of money. Because when I say cash, I mean cash of goods. Um, having this kind of bifurcated approach where which one do I go to? If you're buying land for pure investment, then I think you'd be better off if you could somehow find one half to one acre pieces of property that are nice building sites for the more typical development, especially out of the suburbs in the country that would make a decent bug out location. I think land's a solid investment long term. It might you might not be able to dump it in five years from when you paid. You might be you might even have to take a little loss to get rid of it in five years. I don't know what the economy is going to do over five years. Um, depending on who you talk to, better, worse, right? 
But I think long term, if you're going to hold property for 5, 10, 15 years or more, that there's a good investment potential there. But for your own use, one piece of land. One piece. Because that way all your effort and energy in developing that goes into that one piece. If you get it well developed, and now you decide you'd like something else, that's different. But that's down the road. Put your effort into one piece, at least on the information I have from you now. If you're a pure investor, I gave you my opinion. I'm probably not the person to come to for advice. I'm more about preparation uh, and things like that than I am about buying real estate to make a profit. You know, My view of real estate is if you buy smart, you can always at least protect your investment and potentially profit. If you want to start knowing how to hold property, flip them quickly, make a lot of money, tune in a late night TV, I'm not your man, let's take another one. Okay, as promised, uh, I have a piece for you on genetically modified salmon. Yep, not just genetically modified corn and, and things like that anymore. No, now we're going to genetically modify a fish. Guess it stands to reason that Monsanto took a gene from a fish and put it into corn, that we would then take a gene from a fish and put it into another fish. I guess on the surface that even sounds better. Uh, the person that I chose to uh, pull this from is a guy named Lauren. And uh, he's not the only one. A bunch of you sent this in, so I thought I'd better talk about it on the air. This is a piece from the New York Times, and it says, Genetically altered salmon get closer to the table. Isn't that wonderful? Hey, I'll read a little bit of it to you, and then I'll give you my thoughts on it. You can read the rest if you want to. Uh, I'll give you a link in the show notes. The Food and Drug Administration is seriously considering whether to approve the first genetically engineered animal that people would eat. Salmon that can grow at twice their normal rate. The developer of the salmon has been trying to get approval for a decade, but the company now seems to have submitted most of all the data the FDA needs to analyze whether the salmon are safe to eat, nutritionally equivalent to other salmon, and safe for the environment, according to the government and biotechnology industry officials. A political meeting to discuss the salmon may be held as early as this fall. Some consumer and environmental groups, those wacky environmentalists, man, are likely to raise objections to approval. You think? Uh, even within the FDA, there ha even within the FDA, oh my God, uh, there has been a debate about whether salmon should be labeled as genetically engineered. Genetically engineered crops are not labeled. That's right. If you buy something with GMO corn in it, they don't have to tell you. So uh, the the uh, FDA here is mulling around, well, for genetically modifying animal, is that different? Do we need to tell people it's genetically modified? I'd like to know if you're going to genetically modify my fish. Uh, let's skip a little bit because I want to tell you how they're going to pull this off. The salmon was developed by a company called Aqua Bounty Technologies that would be raised in fish farms. It is an Atlantic salmon that contains growth hormone genes from a Chinook salmon, Okay, as well as genetic on-switch from the ocean pout, a distant relative of the salmon. I'm going to put a link to a picture of an ocean pout in the show notes. When they say distant relative to a salmon, I think they really mean distant. When you see what an ocean pout looks like, it is definitely a distant cousin. Think distance of spider monkey to human. Distant cousin. Normally, salmon do not make growth hormone in cold weather. 
but the pouch on switch keeps production of the hormones going year-round. The result is salmon that can grow to market size in 16 to 18 months instead of three years. Though the company says modified salmon will not end up any bigger than conventional fish. So what they're saying is we're not making a giant salmon, we're growing salmon to market size faster, and what's the problem? We're just taking genes from a Chinook salmon and genes from an ocean pout and splicing them into the fish. Um, folks, my big problem with this isn't just the playing God thing. Um, it is, you know they're not going to tell us when we're buying a piece of salmon that it was GMO salmon. And it's also the doorway that will open here. See, here's the problem. Right now, the uh, production of bioengineered vegetables, crops, corn, and things like that, uh, go under a classification known as generally recognized as safe. That means that when Monsanto comes up with a new genetically modified corn or canola or whatever, it doesn't go through all this crap. This approval process the FDA is putting the salmon through right now it doesn't do that because it's now considered generally, generally recognized as safe. So it means they can just keep going now. Well, you let the salmon through, and what are some of the future plans that they have? Um, <laughs> wait do you hear this. Uh, give me just a second to find it for you. I'm not pulling this out of thin air. This is right in the same article. The salmon's approval would help open a path. Great. Uh, for companies and academic scientists to develop other genetically engineered animals, like cattle that are resistant to mad cow disease, or pigs that could supply healthier bacon. Next in line behind the salmon for possible approval would be uh, the Enviro pig, developed at a Canadian university which has less phosphorus pollution in its manure. i, I, I got to read it again. They want to develop a pig that they can sell us bacon and ham from, not so the bacon and the ham will be healthier for us, but so the manure will have less phosphorus in it. Do you know what you need phosphorus for? Growing food. Yes. When you put fertilizer on the ground, <laughs> it's made up of nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. I gave you an article earlier this year that said the, the world may someday face what's called peak phosphorus, uh, meaning that most of the commercial fertilizer produced today, the nitrogen components come from fossil fuels like uh, natural gas is actually a byproduct, and they get nitrogen out of that, and that becomes fertilizer. But when they phosphorus, it comes from deep mining operations of, uh, of phosphorus that they mine out of the ground, and that we're not going to be out of phosphorus because obviously you can get it from pig manure for your backyard garden, but for large-scale global uh, agriculture. We could face peak phosphorus. Even wars could be fought over phosphorus in the future, and they want to genetically modify a pig and risk our health with unknown consequences so the pig will shit less phosphorus. Yeah, the guy that sent this to me said, you're going to love this one. Yeah, I love this one in a real hateful kind of way. Folks, all I want you to do is pay attention to this. Uh, the article itself says it will be years before this stuff hits the supermarket shelf, even if everything goes through. Please make sure that you're taking control of your own food supply. This is what these ass clowns are trying to do to your food. Genetically modify a pig so it shits less phosphorus. All in the name of environmentalism. 
I got a great idea for protecting our environment. Stop screwing with it and playing God. Let's take another question before I get angry and stay on this for the rest of the show. Okay, this one comes to me from James. James says, thanks for doing the podcast. I've learned a ton. I want your thoughts on cowboy action shooting in general for its relativeness to prepping. I'm considering buying a Ruger Vaquero Bisley in uh, 45 Colt and uh, practicing with that. Eventually moving into full cowboy action shooting setup. I figure it will be good practice. I've only done some shotguns since my days in the Army, and it will help on several levels. One, I'll actually practice. Handguns at first, then rifle and shotgun. Two, I'll reload my own rounds. Too expensive to do otherwise. Uh, three, forty-five Colt is originally a black powder round, and getting back to basics certainly could apply there as well. Thanks for feedback and comments on cowboy action shooting. By the way, I was in Panama around the time of the invasion. Every time you mention Panama and Honduras, I start slapping at imaginary mosquitoes. Understand completely. Um, cowboy action shooting. Never done it. No practical experience with it at all. Seen it on TV. Looks pretty cool. But my overall opinion for prepping, anytime you're putting weapons in your hand, getting out, and shooting them, and developing muscle memory, speed, and control, that's good. You're going to be more likely to be able to use a weapon properly in a self-defense situation. The skill of reloading is huge. So the fact you'll be reloading is great. Now, people would say that the scenarios in cowboy action shooting aren't very realistic uh, for true defensive situations. And then that same person will take their ass down to their local shooting range, stand 15 yards away from the target, and fire slow fire over and over and over again from a standing offhand position in perfect form without moving a step. Is cowboy action shooting really realistic for tactical deployment? No, but it's probably more realistic than what I just described, so it's good for that. Would I ever do it? No, and I'll tell you why. Not because I don't think it's valuable, not because it doesn't look like a hell of a lot of fun, because it's not my DNA to put a cowboy hat on and some chaps and go out and give myself a fake name from 100 years ago and uh, pretend to play cards and shoot at uh, metal targets. Again, not putting you down if you do it. I'm sure you have a blast with it, just... You know, there's probably things I do that you wouldn't want to do. Some of the guys that are out there cowboy action shooting probably wouldn't like to get up in an airplane and jump out of it with a parachute. I think that's a hell of a lot of fun. So my reason for non-participation is simply I don't want to do it. But I get it, and I do like some of the weapons that are used in cowboy action shooting. Little side note, I've had some people contact me all pissed off because when I talk about guns, I will use the word gun and weapon interchangeably. And they'll tell me, you shouldn't do that. That's what the media does when they want to slander us gun owners. If you're using a twenty-two to hunt squirrels, it's not a weapon. It's a rifle or it's a gun. It's not a, it's not a weapon because you're not using it to shoot people. Yes, it is a weapon, ass clown. It absolutely is a weapon. And the day you forget it, you help give ammunition to the people that want to take it away from you. Because the minute you forget that anything capable of causing harm is a weapon, is the day you become complacent, and you're likely to have one of those accidental discharges we talked about earlier. Of course every gun is a weapon. Let me explain. Um, You would say that a baseball bat is a baseball bat. It's for playing sports. But the minute I pick it up and club somebody over the head with it, it's being used as a weapon. It has the potential to be a weapon. As an inanimate object, it is always a weapon. It is only the intent of the person holding it that changes that. Now, if that's true for a bat, 
I can't have an accidental discharge with a bat. I guess, you know, it could be swinging a bat, somebody walks up behind me, and I don't know when I, I go back and I hit him. But, I mean, honestly, how much of an accidental discharge with lethal consequences can there be with a baseball bat? I know the one guy got hit in the face with one at a baseball game when it broke. I guess, and I think his jaw got severely broken, and that could have killed him. But we're talking freak accident. You forget that a gun's a weapon, and any accidental discharge can be lethal at any time. Guns are always weapons. And when you're doing things like cowboy action shooting, remember that. And don't be so freaking paranoid. That's the problem with a lot of gun rights people. Huge gun rights advocate here, folks. Lifetime member of the NRA. Stand up for your right. The day they try to take our guns away is the day that all bets are off with me. You're not getting my guns. All right? So I'm as much dyed in the wool with that as anybody else could be. But just because you're that way doesn't mean that every time somebody says something that you don't like, they're trying, you know, that they're helping the other side or some nonsense like that. You people that, I won't use PayPal because they're anti-gun. Okay, do you buy anything from eBay? Because they're the same company, okay? And PayPal's not anti-gun. They also don't allow you to buy cigarettes. So are they anti-smoking? I mean, you guys got to start thinking beyond the one-dimensional level of polarity that this entire society of marketing bullshit has led you into in the first place. Those of you that are absolutely dyed-in-the-wool, 100% conservative Republican, that's how you identify yourself? Man, do you not understand that you are a cog in the works? You might have certain things that you're on the right side of, but that's being used against you to keep you on the wrong side of other things. This polarity between the us and them this shit's got to stop. My defense of the right to own a weapon is the United States Constitution. And the day that's not good enough anymore, then we've got anarchy in this country. And we've got to fight to take it back, physically if necessary. All right? As long as the Constitution stands, you get what I'm saying there. So I know I kind of got off on a tie ride there from cowboy action shooting, but the weapons thing just has been a craw in my throat since I've had it thrown at me a couple times. It's not a weapon. It is too. Don't you ever forget it. And be damn proud of it. Because that same twenty two that you used to go out and shoot bottles or cans or paper targets or squirrels can very well be turned in to a weapon at a time that it's necessary to defend your home and do a damn good job of it. And if you forget that for one second, the consequences can be severe and life-altering. And even if you don't go to jail, it can stay with you for the rest of your life. And a lot of people who have accidentally shot somebody have ended up, in the end, either taking their own life or wishing they had the courage to because they find it's something they have a very difficult time living with. So don't ever forget that a gun is a weapon at all times. All right, next question. Okay, lots of gun questions today. Uh, this one comes from Michael. Michael says, I have a couple of firearms questions for you uh, from various episodes. Recent one, you mentioned you were not a big fan of the 40 Smith & Wesson cartridge, but did not elaborate much on why. I absolutely did. Go listen to the episode again. I explained everything in that episode of why I'm not a big fan of the 40. I also said if you like it, shoot it. I don't have a problem with it. But that I found... Uh, on either side of it, the 9mm or the 45, depending on what you wanted, to give you more. And that if I was going to go with a 40 caliber weapon, I would look for uh, the 10mm. 
because it has, if I'm going to carry uh, a heavier cartridge with heavier recoil, I'm going to get a significant improvement, uh, not the, what I consider the marginal improvement of the 40 in return for the recoil. And if I really want that improvement ballistically, I'm going to go to the 45. And I said more than that. So listen closer, I guess, is the one I've got there. Uh, in several of your episodes, you mentioned caching firearms and coating them with a heavy coat of cosmoline or oil. You also mentioned storing ammo, but I don't remember hearing anything about cleaning supplies in the cache. Some, and I'm, I'm not being fair to Mike here, but sometimes, folks, I just think, you know what? The show is an hour long, and I talk about a hundred things in every show. In every show, I'm not going to cover every aspect of the topic where the show's going to be four hours long. I've certainly talked about the need to have cleaning supplies stored with your weapons on various shows. Um, and here's what he says about, and I'm going to help you here, Mike. I'm not really being mean to you. From what I understand of Cosmoline, it has to be removed to operate the firearm, and it can be a real pain to do so. In my opinion, okay, a cleaning kit is secondary only to ammo uh, for a firearm, so I was wondering if you include one with your hidden firearms. If not, what is your reasoning not to? Okay, well, first of all, um, when I've talked about hidden firearms, I've talked about it so you can do it, and you don't need to necessarily assume that I have hidden firearms, and I'm certainly not going to say that I do. All right, So let's stop there, and let's stop presuming so much about people, especially in public. All right, the next thing is, yes, I make sure that cleaning supplies are a big part of, uh, of my, uh, my firearms preparation. And again, I've talked about that. The next thing is, uh, can you fire a weapon with Cosmoline on it? Uh, absolutely. Should you? No. Will the damn thing function and get your ass out of a situation, though, or is it just going to blow up if you shoot a gun with Cosmoline? Uh, it'll work. Absolutely it'll work. Now, if it's all gummed up in the action, you could have issues there. All right? But, I mean, if there's Cosmoline in the bore and Cosmoline on it, no, don't do it. But if you had to, because it's a survival situation, you're going to be able to pull that one off. Next, for removing Cosmoline. Two products that work beautifully, absolutely beautifully. And I know this from um, military surplus firearms that I've purchased that are just bathed in it, just soaked in it. And like when they came out of stores, they were actually like paper wrapped uh, and it's like cosmically oozing through the paper. Uh, the first one is called Birchwood Casey Gun Scrubber. And when you spray this on any kind of metal, it almost freezes it. And that just strips cosmoline to the bone. The next one, totally unrelated to farms, but boy, it works better than anything else I've ever seen. I've even used it for refinishing stocks and getting cosmoline-soaked stocks uh, stripped out of cosmoline, uh, and that is uh, easy-off oven cleaner. Again, easy-off oven cleaner. And if you have a, a nicely finished stock that you don't want to get any of the finish removed from, you need to make sure you're only using this on metal and you're stripping the weapon down and keeping the wood in the metal. And especially if those of you guys with uh, with nylon stocks and plastic stocks and, and uh, things like that, keep this stuff off of that. It'll it'll just bleach it out. I mean, I've seen uh, one guy that got it all over the stock of an AR, and it almost looked like a whitish gray color. Um, so don't do that. But as far as metal and stripping metal of cosmoline, I've not seen anything that does that the way that Easy Off Oven Cleaner does. It's caustic. You need to wear gloves. You need to be careful about your breathing, uh, breathing the fumes in and everything. But if you want to strip cosmoline, that's the way to go. As far as a cleaning kit, absolutely, of course you have a cleaning kit. And, I mean, there are times when maybe I assume too much. I assume that if you own a gun and I tell you to maintain it and take care of it, that a cleaning kit springs 
to mind. So I don't always say, and have your cleaning kit too. Just the way, you know, I always, uh, don't always say, uh, when I talk about planting a tomato to make sure that you, that you stake it up. Right? I mean, there's, there's only so much I can cover in a day. Mike, I'm sorry that your question rubbed me and I, and I was a little bit harsh on you. Really, I think you're a good dude. But what did it for me was your statement that I did not tell you why I didn't like the 40 Smith and Wesson. Please go listen. Not everybody, but Mike, please go listen to that episode again. And tell me that I didn't explain it exactly the way I felt about it. All right? And here's another problem. I think everybody needs to listen to this. Everybody needs to listen to this, especially when it comes to guns. Just because I don't like something doesn't mean I need to have to justify why I don't like it. And it doesn't mean if you like it, you're wrong. Okay? I don't like the 270 Winchester for my personal ownership and use. I have nothing against it. I think it's one of the finest rifle cartridges ever created. But the reason I say I don't like it for my personal use is I don't own one. Does that mean you're wrong if you own a 270? No. Does that mean if somebody puts a really nice 270 in front of me someday with a great price tag on it, I might not buy it? No. But it obviously means, with me having all the choices in the world that I do for firearms, that I prefer the 3006. Now, here's what's going to happen. One of you out there, and I stop typing because you're doing it right now. One of you is going to write me a letter about how much better the 270 is than the 3006. If you're the one writing me that letter, you didn't get what I just said. You didn't understand it. Especially when it comes to gun folks. When it's guns, it's opinion on a lot of these things. There's a reality when it comes to guns. For hunting, self-defense, etc. Death does not come in degrees. A lot of people have an opinion that the 3030 is an underpowered deer cartridge. But it's probably put more deer in the freezer than any other cartridge on the planet. So, is it really underpowered? Please let people have their opinions without feeling that somehow because it differs from yours, that, that they're saying you're wrong. Because when I say I don't really like the 40 and you carry one, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that's not what... And Here's the thing. It would be inconsistent for me to say I think the 40 is wonderful. And you said, well, Jack, what do you own when it comes to handguns that you carry? And I say I own 380, I own a 9mm, and I own 45, and I primarily carry a 45. Great. Well, you said the 40 is great. Why don't you have one? Well, I don't prefer it to those other three options depending on what my needs are. You see what I mean? So if I'm going to be consistent, I'm going to give you my opinion. Sometimes it's just my opinion. All right, that's for everybody on some of these little nitpicking issues that you, you, you send me emails about. Um, you know, Another typical one is that people get really upset uh, because I, I make light of the fact that some people get really mad when you call a magazine a clip. You know, and I have one guy say, well, in a firefight, if you ask for a, a clip and the guy throws you a clip instead of a magazine, what? What fantasy world are you living in, bud? You know, I, you guys, I know I'm going on a little bit of a rant here, but I, I just want to, at some times, we've got to stop not taking every word so seriously and start just knowing what people mean. And start understanding each other. And if we can't do that, we're not going to solve a lot of problems that we have in this world. We're really not. Because then everybody that doesn't talk exactly like us is the enemy. And I think that's the polarity I was talking about earlier, about how class warfare is used by our government, by the corporations to keep people apart, to polarize people into the extreme Democrat or the extreme Republican camps and make them feel that the other person is wrong. Another example, recently, 
I did a show, and I said, you people that are calling Democrats Democrats and Republicans Republicans, you got to stop this shit because we're all on the boat together. And somebody on the forum or on, on the blog said, but some of the people on the other side are shooting holes in the boat. Listen. Listen very carefully. When I say all the Republicans and all the Democrats are in the same boat together, I'm not talking about the politicians. You understand? Let me say it one more time. I'm not talking about the politicians. Anybody that's congressman or senator or president or governor, right, or secretary of, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about you and you hating someone for their affiliation politically. Because they disagree with you. And not realizing that you're just as misdirected as they are in your polarization. And, and when we start getting into arguments over clips and magazines, we're doing the same thing amongst ourselves. I know I've gone too long. I apologize. But uh, sometimes I just think certain philosophical things need to be said. Because we live in a world where we spend way too much time arguing amongst ourselves. And not enough productive time just getting things done. Uh, let's take at least one more question before I wrap up today. Here's an interesting one, and the reason that I'm including it is something that's happening in Dallas right now, the city of Dallas. I had a thought, and I've never heard it before, but I thought it was an interesting way to look at a lot of vacation time allotments with work, especially if the hours can roll over. Since the hours are paid out automatically upon termination, they are a hedge against unemployment, and if they carry over from one year to the next, it raise, uh, any raises you may have gotten, since you first got the hours, will likely uh, will be like interest. A lot of employers have a cash out option for vacation time. Um, I, I don't want anybody to get too comfortable with their vacation or their sick time. Uh, right now, in the city of Dallas, if you retire, uh, they actually split for city employees your vacation time and your sick time separately. And last year, last year, retiring employees took out six million. Dollars, just the retiring employees from last year in sick time, and they're completely reevaluating that now and realizing that people don't need to carry sick time until they retire and retire with it. I also want to talk about the raises issue um, and getting more out of your uh, your your vacation or your sick time by waiting until later to do it, uh, and with unemployment especially. This is how a company, and just a different way to think about it. this. comes from Eric, and Eric, it's a good question. I'm not picking on you here at all. Just a different way to think about this. Let's say I'm running my company, uh, Jacko, right? And you work for Jacko. And um, times start to get tough, and I start to lean out expenses. So I cut the electric bill. Maybe I scale back our health insurance program with less benefits. I make you pay a little bit of it, but I'm still not cutting it. I'm not getting by at a profit which means that your employment's in jeopardy. So I'm a good employer, and I don't want to just start firing people. And maybe I've already fired everybody that we can really get by without, and I've got my core of good people left, and I don't want to let one more go. So i got 20 employees. So I say I can either cut one salary, or I can cut everybody's salary by about 10%. And when I cut your salary, I tell everybody, look, if I'm going to keep everybody, this is what I have to do. And if you don't like it, solve my problem for me and resign, and I'll give everybody else their raise back. And no one wants to step to the front of that line, right? So everybody takes the salary decrease. Now, yeah, just cut your pay. So when you do get let go, now the amount that you get per hour accrued 
actually went down. It's not always an upside situation, even if you've been getting promoted. I might cut salaries by 20%. If I'm a jackass and I know I'm going to lay everybody off and I live in a state where they're going to make sure that I do this and I do pay this stuff out, I might do an across-the-board salary cut of 25% a few weeks before I lay everybody off just to reduce my expense at the point that I do the layoffs. Think about that. Don't think that doesn't happen. Don't think companies don't announce wage decreases in advance of a layoff so that they can mitigate the amount paid out on things like accrued sick time and vacation time. The other thing is if your company goes out of business and they're broke, doesn't matter how much you have because you can't get blood from a stone. So please don't see your vacation time and your sick time like money in the bank. It's a nice to have. It's a good thing to have. If you work for a company that, let's say, does, you know, after a couple years, three weeks a year of vacation time, and you can hold up to three weeks, kind of taking only a week and then maybe two weeks and then stretching it out so you always have a pretty decent little buffer there, it is kind of like a savings account. Me, I've always used all my vacation time, all of it, every bit of it, Every year, maybe carry a couple days over just so that until I accrued some more. This is back when I was an employee. There's something there in case I needed to take some time off. But I looked at it this way. Um, life is too damn short to be at work every freaking day. So that's just my thoughts there. Because prepping is not only about having what we need in a disaster, but having a life with some damn quality in it today. I, I know, Folks, I'm going to wrap up. I know I went off on some tirades today. And if it wasn't your cup of tea, I apologize. And if you ever disagree with me, understand that that's okay. But you also need to understand that just because we disagree on a point doesn't mean that we disagree on the entirety of the issue. I don't like a 40. You do. We both believe that you should be carrying well-trained and have a reliable firearm. What you carry is your business and what I carry is my business. Having that debate doesn't even make sense to me. Unless you want to carry like a, a 9 caliber mouse round. I don't even know if that exists, but you get my point. Unless we're talking about going to an extreme or I'm telling you the only thing you should be carrying for certain self-defense is a 50 Action Express. Right? Unless one of us is polarizing to an extreme, we don't even need to have a debate about things like that. We just have opinions. Uh, and opinions? Well, you know what they say about opinions. I'll leave it at that for you. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares